we need to talk about ideas, good ones and bad ones. We need to learn stuff about the world. We need an honest, intelligent, thought-provoking, and entertaining review of what the hell happened on this planet in the last seven days. We need to sit back and listen to the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove. All right, welcome back to your listener. This is the Iron Fist and the Velvet Glove podcast, a special episode, another guest this time. Uh, on this occasion, I've got um, Carl Fitzgerald with me, and uh, welcome aboard, Carl. Welcome to the podcast. Yes, Trevor, I feel like I should have my uh, velvet glove on. <laughs> yeah, so you're down in Victoria and it's cold and you've got a blanket and you've got gloves and you're rugged up. Um, I'm in Queensland. It's probably 22 degrees outside, but I've still got a jumper on. That's how soft we are up here. So uh, good to have you on the podcast. And people are wondering, well, who the hell is Carl Fitzgerald? Well, Carl is... He's a cyclist and a renegade economist, if I was to put it into a sentence. Is that right? A short description, Carl? How, how do you describe yourself? Um, yeah, well, I was a, a mad cyclist until we moved up here uh, to the bush five years ago. And since then, um, yeah, the size of my girth has expanded as uh, I replace cycling with uh, smashing gorse and thistles and whatever else needs doing here on uh, our beautiful 27 acres. Yes, we'll talk about that, that you're converting it into sort of some sort of community type of property. But um, we'll get onto that. Uh, but basically, you've got an interest and an expertise in economics and you've got a particular interest in in land and taxing windfall profits and and the wealth that's created, especially through land and monopoly situations and how to rearrange our society so it's fairer for all. And um, just by way of background then, you were running a podcast which was called Renegade Economist, which is still available for people to, to download. And I think you got to 601 episodes over 14 years, Carl. I mean, where's your resilience and your persistence? You gave up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. It was pretty um, epic. Uh, yeah, 14 years on community radio that was podcasted as well um, via the delightful 3CR here in Melbourne. And, uh, yeah, without an executive producer and having to churn it out weekly, I then wound it back to monthly and, um, yeah, it's just, uh, I don't know, I needed a break. So this is nice. This is the first time I've um, I've done a podcast interview uh, since November last year. So, um, yeah, great to be back on air. Yeah, well, you'll just slip back into the saddle and feel like you've never been away. <laughs> so I've done yeah. about 350 over seven years, so I'm on track. Um, you are. Yeah, I've got a feeling. Yeah, well done. I've got a feeling for what you've done. So um, so anyway, um, let's talk about the issues that you talked about in your podcast. And and you've been involved with a group called Prosper Australia and, and your podcast and, and the stuff you've been doing. So... What is the main theme, the, the key idea that you've been chasing and trying to explain and advocate for? Because you're a communicator with a podcast and your role in Prosper Australia was as an advocate. So you've been trying to get the word out about something, Carl. What is the word you've been trying to get out? 
Can I summarize it in 13 words or less? That is key. Uh, But essentially, we are about rebalancing the so-called level playing field so that monopolists who have a natural advantage over anyone trying to earn a wage or run a business uh, pay a little bit more for that legal privilege And from that, we can use that funding stream to reduce taxes on incomes um, across labour and even capital. Yep. So there's a distinction between capital that is productive and capital which is just extracting unearned wealth is kind of what we're getting at. Is that right? Yes, unearned income is the issue uh, that uh, property owners can... um, can make in their sleep, as John Stuart Mill said. So, uh, when when you have that sort of disparity, you know, w- workers are scrambling to get t- to work on time, and you know, eight fifty nine, nine o'clock in the morning. Whereas a monopolist uh, still earns money, whether they're on the ski slopes of Whistler or in a hammock in Hawaii. Mm. So that's you know that was a. a a prominent aspect of political analysis up until World War One. It really was one of the mainstays of, of uh, public uh, debate, whether you are a conservative or a progressive. So um, it's all about trying to rekindle um, this, this lost knowledge base that's been around for virtually thousands of years. Right. So there was a recognition back then, but it's been lost. And I can sense that loss as well. I mean, I'm old-fashioned, Carl. I attend dinner parties and get into arguments, and often with people who own multiple rental properties, and and they will bang on the table about how hard they work in terms of looking after their properties and and putting up with tenants who damage them, and and no doubt there is some time involved. But your analysis is that there's unearned income there that it's it's profit beyond what's actually normal or deserved how how does this you know people would say well you know i worked hard i paid the rates i paid the interest i paid the deposit i saved up my other money i worked hard for this property portfolio Mm. i have i deserve everything i get from the from the capital gains that accrue so what do you say to that yeah well they just they deserve a return on their capital for sure, but it's the locational value that typically is what rises. Uh, so we should all get a share of that and uh, there should be uh, lower taxes on um, company structures and so forth. So, yeah, basically two-thirds of the rent you would pay would uh, reflect the locational value and one-third would be the rental value. So um, ultimately, if we were to have our system in place, people would be paying somewhere around about a 6 to a 7% land tax, but that would be sufficient along with other taxes on monopoly to totally remove income tax. Mm. So, you know, imagine two or three people living in your household and no one's paying income tax. We've also got rid of GST 
there's there's a huge tax shift potential there and uh, it's interesting that Singapore who uses elements of this system has pretty much set the default rate for uh, minimum income taxes as we see the OECD um, arguing for now for companies to have a minimum 15% the so-called Warren Buffett rule. Mm. We'll get on to solutions uh, in a little bit, but I just still want to just sort of um, get over the threshold of a recognition of the unjustness or unfairness of of the capital gain that accrues. So um, Jackie Trad is a politician up here and she got into trouble because she owned a rental property that was going to be near a change to a train station at Woolloongabba, I think, associated with different things and and because it hadn't been declared properly, there were issues and people saying, oh, you're getting this windfall gain from this infrastructure that's going to be built and, you know, you should have disclosed it. Short story. And this happens all the time where people buy properties and and then hospitals, infrastructure, shopping centres, other things that increase the value of that um, piece of land will crop up as part of our civilization of 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 the of the land and 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 that's kind of what leads to these um, sort of windfall profits is is the other infrastructure that the community has built around this land that that might have been sitting there doing nothing is, is that part of the argument we have a saying that land price takes all the gains so whether it's an increase in the first home buyer's grant, it's volunteers planting trees um, near that train station, it's Banksy doing some graffiti near the train station, it's a new hospital, uh, all of those things make a location location so much more valuable. Uh, and whilst that is the number one strategy in real estate, um, it's moved from uh, top of the pops in economics pre World War One, pre twentieth uh, century um, into this world now where uh, it's barely mentioned, and uh, we need uh, superstar economists like Joseph Stiglitz to come to Australia and remind us of this uh, this historical wisdom of of uh, leveling the playing field. Mm. I was listening to one of your podcasts, and you were talking about land banking and that there's no incentive for developers to release land to meet the demand. Do you want to explain that concept? Yes. Well, geez, I'm I'm right on the edge of my seat here because uh, for 10 years I've been trying to do this report and I've just sent it to um, one of Australia's leading investigative journalists to release this time next week. And it's called the Staged Releases Report, Peering Behind the Land Supply Curtain. And so everyone would have heard uh, that housing affordability, you know, it's all reliant on housing supply and uh, it's these planning departments who uh, hold things up with all this red tape, this bureaucracy, that is uh, the problem we have. Well, we, uh, in cahoots with uh, University of New South Wales, we bought some very expensive data to actually see what happens once developers get all this land rezoned. And we looked at uh, the sales over uh, 20 odd years and analyzed the timing, 
and the size of those uh, a number of properties released to the market in what's called a staged release. And so if listeners, uh, viewers, go and visit a master plan community, make sure you check out the display home. And just outside it, they'll have a giant big billboard, which will probably say stage 33 over over in some direction. And maybe there'll be a stage... uh, uh, 35, um, you know, some of these are up to stage 173C, um, which probably means they've done 500 little um, uh, teasers of land supply that they've released to the market in a certain size and a certain timing to maximise their profits. Mm-hmm. Now, government typically has um, given uh, all care and no responsibility. They do the rezoning and then no one looks at what actually happens. Well, this report goes into it and finds some fascinating um, data points there that really expose just how powerful uh, land bankers are, uh, developers can be. Um, and, uh, you know, a couple of uh, Queensland-based um, developments that we studied uh, were Springfield, um, Aura was another one um, up on up near Caloundra. I think Yarrabilba might have been the other one. So, um, yeah, we looked at nine master plan communities um, along the East Coast and, uh, yeah, we're, we're really hoping that it, it shines a light on what goes on behind that land supply curtain in terms of um, um, supply, in a way, disappearing when um, affordability could be delivered. So they've got capacity to release this land quicker. They can build the drainage. There are drainage, that the curb and channelling, the infrastructure. It, it, that's not the issue. It's just them deciding to hang on to it and drip feed it out so that, well, if they released more of it a lot quicker, just the price would go down. Is that is that essentially it? Yeah, there's certainly problems with the way infrastructure is funded. Um, you know, there are problems with the forward planning um, of uh, growth corridors, but Queensland um, from 2007 has been really vigilant in terms of its... Um, it's monitoring of these growth corridors, and um, yeah, there's been all sorts of uh, all sorts of de- little developments uh, within planning to actually um, to get uh, to get things organised at, at a, an appropriate level. I'm just pulling up the report now. So in 2007, um, Queensland government released a housing affordability strategy to ensure that the state's land and housing is on the market quickly and at the lowest cost. By 2017, there was a shaping SEQ report um, to uh, help uh, best practice regional planning um, regarding the monitoring of land supply and development. In 2018, there was the land supply development monitoring reports on a very fancy website. Uh, and in 2021, a growth areas monitoring team was established. But if you go through and do a word search on all of these reports, um, there's uh, stinging criticism of planning and the need to prepare all this supply. But, you know, this growth areas monitoring team has not asked one question on what happens once that rezoning's done and how supply might be altered. So, um, 
Yeah, I think I'm going to be up for an interesting few weeks because this report is probably going to stir the hornet's nest and hopefully um, get government thinking, you know, incredibly seriously about this promise. We've been told all this supply is going to make a difference. But look at Springfield, 43,000 lots. Have prices gone down at all? Mm. It's staggering when you see the graph. You just can't believe that this has gone on for so long and no one's asked questions about it. Mm. So in, so if, if Carl Fitzgerald was in charge of society, then if, if a developer benefits from a rezoning, then there should be an obligation perhaps to get cracking with the development and to do the work and, to, and then to sell it off. Is that... And, and not to sit on it is that I can remember uh, my wife's father won a ballot for some land up in North Queensland, and there used to be these ballots in the old days where you could just sort of win land. But part of the deal was that you had to undertake certain work um, within a certain time frame. I think uh, as part of the deal, so a little bit of the same yeah, philosophy. They- well, they have aspects of it and, um, you know, you've got six years to act on your development approval. I forgot what they call it in Queensland, but, you know, there are some limitations. But, of course, developers have got in there and they get a land tax discount if they hold their land um, in the development pipeline for a set number of years. You know, it's it's almost as if government just turns a blind eye to the ever-increasing increase in land values, um, you know, thinking that uh, the developer's doing it hard because they've got to do a couple of months' worth of planning paperwork every few years. Right. So while they're in the development phase, they get a discount on land tax. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. So I've been very lucky to be working with um, Cameron Murray, Dr. Cameron Murray, who's one of Queensland's leading progressive economists. Um, Yeah, you'll have to get him onto your podcast somewhere along the way, because, yeah, the two of us have sort of been working in cahoots to try and bring this housing supply story to light mm-hmm. um, because, you know, everyone's talking about housing supply. But the thing I'm actually best known for is um, measuring vacant land and housing. Yes, please tell and, that story. Yeah, so, you know, we've got this housing supply crisis. There's probably been 500 press releases over the 18-plus years I've been working in this job and... Um, yeah, government does not measure how many vacant homes there are on a regular basis until the census comes along and uh, we get data there that there's some 1.1 million dwellings that were not occupied on census night, but there's nothing in between. And so uh, developers get to uh, carry on about there being record low uh, vacancy levels, so we need more housing supply. But then we we go and um, when we started this in 2007, the Real Estate Institute of Victoria used to get a lot of free press um, publicising their vacancy um, data. And we looked at it and it was like, hang on a minute, this is a voluntary survey conducted by real estate agents who have an incentive to uh, downplay the role of vacancy. So... You know, if vacancy happens to increase, oh, I might just miss filling out that survey for the week. Mm. And this creates a a tightening of the drum, if you like, for 
all the property lobbyists to play to say, look, there's not not enough supply. We need to keep, uh, we need to rezone some of our mates' land out there on the sprawl. Come which, on, which we can then, which we can then sit on for a little bit longer. <laughs> okay, so um, and enjoy the rezoning windfall. So, so how, it's yeah. a beautiful formula. How did you calculate? or attempt to calculate this vacancy rate that you didn't trust um, the real estate agents to pr- to provide? Yeah, well, uh, we did that using um, water consumption mm. as a proxy for vacancy, so abnormally low um, water consumption. And, um, yeah, the uh, – oh, I'm just trying to bring this up because, um, yeah, we've got the um, – Water bodies providing the data for us, and and we analyze properties that use zero liters of water, um, or uh, fifty liters of water, and so between those two metrics, we get a, a top and tail of what potentially might be vacant, and uh, from that we need um, we need to uh, you know focus on on why these properties might be vacant and one of our hypotheses has been that um that uh they're just sitting on it waiting for the capital gains and, and so, how, how um, did your calculation match up with what the real estate industry had been saying uh at least three to four times greater right yeah yep yeah, and, and, and how- then that, then it sort of slightly um, improved after that. The REIV stopped doing their analysis, and um, Louis Christopher from SQM Research, he does a vacancy analysis that scrapes the data on real estate listing websites and quantifies anything that's been on the market for more than three weeks is vacant. Mm-hmm. So that's better, but it still doesn't include all of those properties that might be held by an investor, might be um, in part of a, a legal um, quagmire, um, a family estate being split up. None of those are really counted. Well, they're not counted in those vacancy numbers. So uh, we don't have a, a true understanding of how much um, latent supply there is. And when you think that it's costing government, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars per metre of sprawl, to move roads, you know, all the uh, headworks infrastructure, all the community services, everything that's required to sprawl um, costs millions and millions of dollars and uh, we've just turned a blind eye to that in preference for um, what we know as uh, the property-owning democracy. I think some councils have started charging higher rates, is that right, for vacant properties? They do, but it's only, you know couple of hundred bucks extra a quarter it's yep. not really enough to eat into the um eat into the 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 capital gains that are enjoyed each year and so um recently i was contacted by a queensland uh, a courier mail journalist who um was putting together a report on how eighty-seven thousand properties around brisbane were empty as well so we're often um, getting numbers in between that sixty to ninety thousand um, sort of property number, but we, you know, every now and again, out of the the fifteen odd years we've been doing this report, we'd see um, a suburb on the sprawl where there'd be sixty four point eight percent of the suburb vacant, and uh, this um, development outside of Frankston North here in Melbourne. Um, 
had uh, pretty much uh, let the cat out of the bag by turning the water meters on in one of these developments before um, they'd actually sold the sites. And so um, that had me thinking eight, nine years ago, how do we look at, you know, all these other vacancies through these giant land banks that, um, you know, you can find data that uh, both Queensland and Victoria have around about 400,000 lots that have been approved or in the approval process um, to, to feed the, the land banks of the future over the next 15, 18, 20 years. Mm. How, how do the census data match up with, with vacancy rates and your thoughts on it? Did it, did it match up? It was uh, reasonable. Um, we've got a new report coming out soon that will delve further into that. But, um, you know, comparing one census to the other, we were, you know, it was always going to be an interesting one because, A, so many people were home on census night and, B, we'd brought back two or 300,000 expats for, from overseas. Um, but, yeah, it was interesting to see that, that vacancy rates were actually down a little bit compared to um, the 20, what was it, 2015 um, census. Yeah. So, um Yep. Yeah. In, in your final podcast, um, you declared a bit of a victory in Victoria, um, uh, some sort of windfall profits tax of some sort, and and uh, the Calico Sisters. There's a story there. Could could you describe what what that was about? Yes. Well, the Calico Sisters, uh, their father had bought a property um, up near Craigieburn, which is on the edge of Melbourne, um, right off the Hume Highway. So a pretty good location. And, uh, yeah, I think they bought it for a couple of hundred thousand dollars in, in 1974 or something. And um, they sold it to uh, Stockland, I think, for $300 million. Um, so, yeah, it was a massive, massive windfall. And um, we've been looking at um, the nation's most progressive um, jurisdiction, uh, Canberra, and what the ACT does there, where 75% of that $300,000 minus, you know, 150-odd K, um, the purchase price. So, you know, basically three quarters of that 300 k would have gone back to the government to fund um, the necessary infrastructure um, to reduce pressure on small business. Um, but, uh, yeah, Victoria, um, nowhere else in the country has um, any sort of rezoning windfall gains tax um, on their books outside of the ACT. So, yeah, we were, you know, we've always put in our budget submissions to the Victorian government and were pleasantly surprised when they finally took up uh, the rezoning windfall gains tax and uh, put a 50% charge on it but limited it to um, properties outside the current growth boundary around Melbourne. So they basically set it up for the next generation of land bankers um, to pay a 50% share of uh, the windfall gains they receive. And this this is uh, sort of the triggering things are land that gets rezoned and, and then is sold and they have to declare to the state government what the profit was and the state government will take a, a tax at that point when they sell it. That's right. 
And right. so um, there were lots of debates about the indexation of that and, um, you know, what sort of incentive there could be to help bring some of that land supply onto the market. Um, but, yeah, they, you know, we've got this crazy suburban rail loop happening around Melbourne, supposedly, that's going to cost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, but uh, all the land bankers along that train route have been excused. They're going to be able to make their millions. Uh, we're just about to rezone West Melbourne, a giant precinct there, and all the property owners are going to get this massive uh, gift there as well. And then uh, probably the same people are going to whinge about having to pay too much in payroll tax, too much, uh, you know, tolls, whatever. Um, it, it's it's this form of protectionism we have throughout society, throughout the Westminster system, where you know property owners are sacrosanct, and you know uh, who cares if my kids live at home till uh, they're twenty seven. And I have to listen to them shagging through the walls, you know. Well, I'd much rather this system. It'd be great. You know, it's, it's ludicrous that uh, we think this is actually uh, a sound system. And, you know, lo and behold, uh, you've had floods up there and Brizzy and Lismore's copped it well and truly. And, you know, the weight of all this mortgage debt we're carrying is mm. reducing our flexibility to be able to deal with the sort of issues that are coming our way. Yes, um, just briefly, you, you've been saying a few times we, and you've been sort of lobbying as part of the Prosper Australia group. Is that right? Do you want to just describe? Yes. I know you've recently left them. You want to describe what you were doing what? there and what they do? Well, I've got one more week after 18 years at the beloved Prosper Australia. So, um, yeah, Prosper is a 130-year-old uh, NGO that advocates on behalf of the teachings of Henry George, who was a famous uh, classical economist who came to Australia um, in 1890 and uh, pretty much inspired the um, freehold title that uh, underpins um, the leasehold title, sorry, that underpins Canberra and the ACT. So um, he was all about... Um, this concept of uh, incredible progress being accompanied by um, undeniable poverty and why do the two go hand in hand? Mm. And um, he was quick to really um, pick up on what uh, Adam Smith and David Ricardo had said um, in coded language but took it an extra step further by saying, look, you know, why on earth do we penalise workers? Why do we penalise uh, traders with all of these tariffs back in those days when it's actually those who stole the land from Indigenous people, um, those who control these natural opportunities that make the easy money? And so, uh, you know, we... we uh, have to protect this land, so why don't the people who own the land pay for the governing of the land? Mm. So, um, so Prosper, you, you were with them and you, your role was to advocate, so you would lobby um, different politicians and, and meet with them and harangue them and, and do all that sort of stuff. That, that was what you did for 18 years? Well, yes, along the way, um, there were quite a few other angles. But, um, yeah, I mean, I, I was the director of research for a number of years as well. Uh, but essentially we would hold events, we would um, create news 
based around um, innovative um, data analytics to uh, reveal these stories of monopoly and and help shine a light on these unfair advantages that that property owners um, enjoy. Um, and yeah, back in uh, 2012, I. I made a documentary called Real Estate for Ransom. And in it, we went to one of the master planned communities that inspired this uh, latest staged releases report and uh, talked about some of these staged releasing and, you know, how crazy. I did. We didn't say it, but it was sort of like when you hear the term staged releases, for someone of our sort of generation, you kind of think back to... Um, the Iran uh, hostages scandal um, right. in 79, 80, and how they doctored the release of all of these hostages to coincide with the election, the US election. Yes. Ronald Reagan um, made a lot of hay out of that one. Uh, and, you know, here we have with uh, stage releases the same sort of thing. So, um, yeah, there's always um, interest from the media when there is a, a, a logical counter story to the way that um, that uh, this sort of one-eyed nature of, of um, property always, uh, you know, property always winning. Um, and, uh, you know, I always like the question, um, who are property rising property prices good for? Uh, you always hear it in the media as if mm. it's a great thing, but now after 20-odd years of a housing crisis, we're starting to really see the ramifications on over 55 uh, single women and kids, young kids and divorcees. It's um, it's just a, yeah. I think we're finally of- reaching the point where people are under, starting to understand that this is damaging to our society and even the people who are benefiting from benefiting from it i.e baby boomers mostly are starting to comprehend that um yes your average young person um cannot afford to buy a house in the same way that the boomer could when they were in their 20s and the statistics are just plain to see if you look at the median house of house price and the median wage and look at the multiple, it's just obvious that um, the numbers don't stack up for people. So people are just starting to turn in the last literally 12 months maybe, Carl, where they're starting to go, you know what, this is a problem for Australian society, the great Australian dream and having that that sort of uh, valuation increase and being happy about it and, you know, it, the Courier Mail and the newspapers will produce reports every six months. You know the Brisbane suburbs that have increased most, and you look it up and you see that your suburbs increased the most, and you feel happy about it or whatever. And yeah, I think people are starting to recognise that this is a genuine problem. And uh, I, I know uh, Alan Kohler. I give this example. Alan Kohler, um, ABC finance guy looked at a property that was like seven kilometres from the Sydney CBD of a certain standard and then he went online to look in New York for a property the same distance from New York CBD, same sort of property, and it was half the price. Yeah. Well, they also pay a lot more um, in property taxes over there. Right. And so this, you know, if we can talk a little bit about solutions, this is... Mm. um, 
the the reality we need to um, grasp is you know we can either pay current prices to um, the banking system to the previous owner or we can channel some of those payments away from um, the banking system and towards essentially to giving ourselves a, a tax cut mm-hmm. and that's what would happen if we had um, a much higher reliance on land taxes rather than a stamp duties B, payroll, C, income tax, you know, um, D, company taxes. And, uh, yeah, in 2013, I released a report called The Total Resource Rents of Australia. And um, you'd think, you know, we're here to protect this land and and govern it and look after it. You'd think you'd know the total value of all of our our natural endowment. Well, um, there's very few economists on the planet who have actually done that sort of work to calculate how valuable all of our natural resources are and how much do they actually increase in value each year. So by doing that, I could see that um, if we had um, a resource rent on our miners, for example, if we had uh, some sort of licensing fee on our water licences, um, we had uh, cyber squatting fees to deter cyber squatters. Um, we had a, a share of the um, satellite orbit rents that um, are enjoyed uh, by all the telecommunications companies. Um, if there was something, you know, we replaced uh, company taxes for um, TV and radio stations. And again, they had a licensing fee based on the value of their, their um, particular um monopolization of that part of the earth um they wouldn't have to borrow so much money to buy that asset up front but they would know they'd have this ongoing fee that they had to pay that would rise in value if uh, some sort of technological development came along mm. so um it's it's staggering that we don't actually have uh, futurist departments within treasury who are looking at what the the next um, aspect of privatizing the earth is and preparing the public uh, financing system to defend the community from these rent seekers who come in and bribe their way into the corridors of power and then uh, uh, clean up with barely anyone noticing, um, you know, if groups like uh, Prosper and the Australia Institute and and people like Cam Murray, uh, you know, and various other academics don't talk about it. Um, yeah, it should be the bedrock of democratic understanding so we can actually evolve um, beyond just voting every four years but have um, a say and a share in the value of these resources um, that's equal across the board, across generations. And from that, uh, you know, we can reduce this uh, reliance on debt and um, the insecurities that a precarious housing situation um, delivers. And, you know, we have little little uh, um, examples of this around the world and one of them um, is what a Republican governor did in um, Alaska. Mm. In 1974, he set up the Alaska Permanent Trust Fund and um, scraped off a, a share of oil rents every year. And now that's upwards of uh, 40-odd trillion dollars. Um, similar thing happened in Norway. And, uh, you know, that's only been around for 
barely 30 years and again it's it's probably over 40 50 trillion dollars and uh in alaska everyone gets uh, around about two thousand dollars a year it does vary but um, that money is most welcome when it comes to paying off any short-term debts or catching up on on a bit of dental work or something like that to help um, people get ahead. So how did that get through in Alaska that we couldn't get the RUD sort of windfall resource tax through? How, mm. how come we failed? Yeah, well, I was involved in that debate and it was horrifying to see how poorly Labor was advised in terms of its framing. Right. You know, they came out with an us against them sort of concept rather than trying to get the Business Council of Australia on board by reducing company taxes by four or five percent rather than the piddly two percent that they offered. Um, and so they they were left exposed and uh who would have thought Gina Reinhart um, stumbling up onto the back of a truck and yelling out axe the tax would become a rallying cry for um, all these tradies uh, brought up on, um, you know, the uh, essential dietary fibre that uh, the Murdochracy provides, um, Rupert Murdoch's media Yep. Um, brainwashing sort of thing. Yep. And, uh, you know, as good as Ken Henry is as an economist, um, they didn't have that sort of framing side of things together. And, um, yeah, you know, we then fast forward to the Bill Shorten federal election a few years ago and, um, again, it was us and them. Yep. And there was no sort of nuance on how to bring people along with um you know this necessary reform and what we're going to do to actually placate these vested interests along the way that isn't actually going to make it worse yeah so maybe it's it's it is a us against them scenario but the us should have included the industrial capitalists who are productive in our community and the, yeah and emphasizing that the them was a really small group of basically miners and rather than us being um, poor everyday working Australians versus business in general sort of thing. So, yeah, yep, Murdoch and, um, you know, but I guess it comes down to, I used, again, my dinner party arguments with people, Carl, is um, people are convinced that billionaires earn their wealth. Good luck to them. They've taken the risk. They've worked hard. Things have fallen into place and, and that that it's theirs to keep all this wealth. And um, there is this idea that, that billionaires earn their billions. Is, is it true? Do they earn their billions? Well, uh, some do. And, you know, companies that have some, you know, pure entrepreneurial genius, we'd love to support that. You know, mm. that's part of what Henry George and Prosper Australia um, seriously support. And, you know, look at the Atlassian um, boys, um, Cannon Brooks and, and Scott Farquhar. They're, you know, ama obviously amazing coders, really smart um, individuals. Mm -hmm. but they were also there at just the right time, weren't they? Mm -hmm. They had perfect timing and uh, a lot of their wealth is based off um, this you know, the publicly developed infrastructure that came out of uh, US military um, and uh, relies on 
you know, the sanctity of business contracts that are mm -hmm. enforced through the public court system that then um, feeds up into um, uh, the share market and the IPO um, scenario that also is backed up by a system of um, public uh, uh, laws. And so there's an aspect there where, sure, they should earn good money. They've developed great products, but there's also um, uh, a lot of confidence and protection guaranteed for those business activities because of what um, the public legal system does um, all the way through patents and trademarks and copyrights and so forth. And so there is a way that we could have uh, better valuations of those services um, of the benefits they receive and they paid something back for that. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm pleased. I haven't heard, you know, sure, they've bought ridiculously overpriced real estate and they probably have a big real estate um, sort of investment stream through one of their private uh, trusts. Um, but you'd like to think there would be um, uh, entrepreneurs out there who recognise this unearned income and um, shied away from it because of its its unethical basis. Um, you know, it really is um, a, a subtle form of um, of slavery, if you like, mm -hmm. the system we have where we, we're up to debt in our eyeballs and we've got no time to think because we're working our brains out and, um, yeah, people uh, really can't think long-term anymore. That critical lens is gone, and that's part of the reason why podcasts have been so popular is because we're able to bring some of these forgotten skills back to the public imagination and, uh, yeah, breathe in on all this history that's out there. Mm. I think the Romans used to do a thing where successful generals who would be riding the chariot back into Rome and everyone would be throwing confetti at them or whatever, um, there'd be a guy whose job was to stand behind the successful general and whisper into his ear, remember you are but a man, just to sort of keep the ego in check. Probably billionaires need somebody similar because I, I would imagine they're surrounded by yes men who tell them how wonderful they are. So, uh, yeah. Mm. Yeah. So... Um, so yeah, so there's there's the sort of uh, windfall profits in in land we talked about earlier, and there's also windfall profits in 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 monopoly industrial sort of businesses or tech companies. I mean, a lot of tech sort of startup stuff. The idea is to be the biggest player in that sector that you are so big that you then can repel any potential competition, and mm. it's uh, a lot of the super profits come from being so big that nobody else can enter the market. You know, like Uber's idea was to get in first, to be the uh, company that dominated the market and it would be too expensive for others to come in. So um, that, that, that's part of our civilization. our commons is, is a recognition that that sort of monopoly is a claim on the commons and needs to be accounted for. Mm. Yeah, and one of the classic examples is when Adam, um, Apple bought Motorola and everyone thought it was uh, hugely overpriced, $2.5 billion, something like that, and um, 
yeah, a couple of months later, the word got out. Well, what they really bought was uh, Motorola's uh, a, a patent thickets that established around all sorts of mobile phone and electronic processes. And so it was a, a form of uh, market protection. And, uh, you know, telling this story always takes me back to when I went to interview uh, my old professor, John Freeban, and I happened to walk past a brand new auditorium near his uh, spanking new office, and it was called the Centre for Market Design. Right. And he told me it was for PhD students to study how to erect a monopoly. Well, he didn't tell me that, but that was the impression I got. But it basically how to erect a, a fence around your particular business so um, you f- face as little competition as possible. So, hmm. um, you know, we've really picked the eyes out of where we were going in terms of um, a future where, you know, all of these gadgets we have, you know, in the 50s and 60s, the white goods revolution, everyone thought, you know, you'd have all this leisure time at your fingertips. But uh, whilst incredible productivity has been enhanced from that side of things, uh, the f- you know, Rockefeller apparently was a really strong supporter of uh, feminism because he he recognised that having two income earners within a household would mean that the land rent, uh, the locational value of uh, someone living in inner Brisbane would go up and there'd be more profits there for the wealthy. So, Because um, two incomes could pay a higher price, purchase price. Yeah, yeah and, and, and that, that's, yeah. it hasn't really been delineated that, you know. It used to be one income per house um, and you'd do that multiple of incomes to, to household values. But as that um, that share of the workload has, has become more equal, um, yeah, it's it seems like um, that's sort of been totally understated in, in the way... Um, housing affordability is discussed uh, we always hear about negative gearing and capital gains tax 1999 um, the big cuts that uh, Peter Costello um, put through uh, as as driving um, this this uh, incredible windfall that um, property owners make but yeah there there are plenty of other aspects that also add to it but of course that's alongside the liberalisation of the banking system were, were major players um, to, to how uh, we're in this situation now. Mm. Uh, so, Carl, you've got a degree in economics? Yes. Sort? Yep. Yep. Um, I'm getting the feeling, as we both are, are admirers of, um, of Professor Michael Hudson and uh, you know, I'm, I've been reading a lot of economics stuff lately. I like reading Yanis Varoufakis and just other ones. And it seems the more you read, the more these people are saying that economists traditionally, the sort of economics that's taught at university, um, the way money is described and how the monetary system works, is completely wrong. And... The training that our economists are getting at university seems to be way off the mark. Do you look back on what you were taught at university and think, my God, mm. I was misled badly? Yeah, well, that that was the primary purpose of me interviewing um, John Freeban was to get to that story because in the first semester we were told, you know, output equals labour plus capital. 
And then in one of the last um, lessons of my undergraduate degree was, uh, sorry, output doesn't equal labour and capital, and we can't tell you why. Mm. And, uh, you know, 10 years later, I discovered Henry George and read this incredible book called The Corruption of Economics by uh, Mason Gaffney and Fred Harrison. And it went through this period um, that and and talked about, you know, the 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 sense of revolution that was coming um, with Henry George um, out and about you know, really breaking down the economic story so the everyday person could understand it. Um, and, uh, yeah, they were like, heck, we need a diversion plan to come up here. So um, they figured out that let's get rid of land and hide it in capital as if capital already owns the earth and only concentrate on labour and capital as the two major um, factors of production. And so um, the the influence of land and um, the ever-present uh, property bubbles that seem to wipe out economies around the world about every 18 years or so um, is, is pretty much hidden in the background and uh, we're left with um, this seemingly ever more complex mathematical um, formulas that uh, we just... Um, we, you know, people finish their economics degree going, well, what the hell, what what use is this? It doesn't mm. tell me anything about the real world. Um, but I used to love getting people uh, thinking as I'd be podcasting and, you know, from a, a conference somewhere around Australia or somewhere overseas. And you can just basically walk the streets once you understand this story and see, oh, yep, here's the hipster suburb. Um, oh, yeah, there's the new infrastructure going past there out to the next sort of, uh, wow, is that where all the cool graffiti is and where all the good music venues are out there? Oh, God, I bet you that's where all the property investors are. And, you know, now they're doing that from their phone mm-hmm. using um, uh, software packages, algorithms that plug in the latest demographic trends, uh, local employment rates, new infrastructure plans, uh, you know, rezoning capacities. They've got so many metrics coming in. um, And then from this stage releases report, we're imagining they've also got the days on market, the age of stock, um, the auction clearance rates, the um, first home buyers uh, lending conditions, all of these factors would feed in to what they're doing and give um, uh, a hotspot for where to invest. And um, one of the great tragedies, uh, yeah, I decided to keep positive in my last podcast um, show uh, for the Renegade Economists, um, but, yeah, we had this uh, rezoning windfall gains tax legislation go through, but um, it was only in the last few days we recognised that tacked onto the back end of that legislation was a giant handout to Wall Street. Really? So we've got this whole phenomena of housing supply and, and there's no housing supply. We need more capital. We need more investment. We need more big money. And so Wall Street post-GFC decided we've already locked up the mortgage market why don't we design a, a form of securitization to corporatize the rental market? Right. So 
that's what's been happening in the Northern Hemisphere. And uh, ScoMo went over to England and came back all breathless about this concept called build to rent. Yep. And so build to rent is um, is big capital coming in and uh, basically uh, setting up prop tech so you can rent from your landlord and um, you know, there's some advantages to that, but there's also apparently quite a few examples of data scraping going on and sort of bit of eavesdropping through those apps where they're pretty much figuring out what your financial situation is and uh, starting to um, move towards a system where rents will be based on, you know, your fullest capacity to pay. So with this um, build-to-rent legislation, they gave Wall Street um, a 50% discount on their land taxes but didn't put any um, uh, affordability thresholds in place to ensure that it's each property, you know, each development's at least 90% occupied, mm. that, you know, um, there is uh, some affordable housing within that development. None of those metrics were put in there. So it's sort of all faith in the market and as we've seen with this reliance on on housing supply just like we saw with the reliance on another form of um, supply side thinking that was known as trickle down economics mm. um, really it it's generally set up to uh, hold advantage for those in the know um, for the top end of town rather than providing a bit of balance so that we all get some returns from this public policy so, so in the Northern Hemisphere, sort of big corporates are getting into owning residential property to rent out. Is that what's happening? Yeah. And then getting a bunch of it together and then securitizing that and on-selling it and refashioning it and moulding it. But, yeah. but that hasn't happened yet here, has it? Hasn't happened yet here. Um, uh, there's a company called Blackstone Capital and Stephen <coughs> Schwartzman um, uh paraded through the country in about 2018 and had uh, full-page ads in all the major papers uh, talking about Blackstone and uh, left the country saying, look, uh, yeah, just the way things are set up, there's no way we could make this work. And uh, this was from a guy who's earning $800 million a year. Right. And, and, and why couldn't it work? Why couldn't they make it work here? What? What, what well, because them? of the progressive land tax rate. So the more the more land they would own, the higher the land tax bracket they would be in. Right. And from that, um, there would A, be some pressure on them to put those properties on the market at the market price rather than at the monopolist price. So... Um, yeah, you know, during the GF, it's during the uh, COVID crisis, during lockdown, uh, there were thousands and thousands of properties that were just pulled from the rental market and left vacant um, to put a price floor in place to ensure that rents really didn't um, plummet and uh, apartment prices in the CBDs. Uh, here um, uh, fall. So that's where a land tax comes in. It, it keeps the property market honest. It ensures that um, there's some economic, day-to-day -day economic reasoning behind the use of that resource rather than this long-term power play to orchestrate the supply so profits are maximised. Right. And it kicks in at a level that a big corporation like that would have felt the pain of it, whereas it doesn't kick in 
well, as you said, land developers get a, a an amnesty while they're in the development stage. So, okay, that'll make sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a sad, it's a sad story. Oh dear. So, Carl, um, we'll, we'll sort of head towards the finish line here. So, you've got this report coming out. That's hopefully you will get some traction and you'll be interviewed and. You know, you're going to appear on Q and A and things like that, perhaps. You know, fingers crossed. But what are you going Maybe. to do? Uh, what's what's your plan after that? As that dies down, what, yeah. what's your what are you doing now? Well, uh, my wife and I um, bought this property up uh, near Malmesbury in Central Victoria, near Dalesford, um, Castlemaine sort of region, hoping to establish what's called a community land trust. And this is um, a system where the rising value of location is kept within the community to pay off the debts of of establishing um, the site. And then, yeah, we'll have this this surplus, if you like, that we can invest in our own um, social venture here on the land um, whilst uh, enabling um, steady, secure uh, and affordable housing. So, you know, imagine two-thirds of your uh, mortgage or rental payment going back to uh, a community um, of people you're you're involved in and uh, acting responsibly to pay off debts and then using that money for good things your community needs. Mm. So this is a housing model that has been um, very popular overseas and the UK has gone from two to to 400 plus CLTs um, post uh, global financial crisis in America during the GFC um, CLTs had a foreclosure rate that was 94% lower than the wider market and so it's a lot more stable because it removes that speculative component from housing and actually provides affordable supply rather than um, supply at the highest possible cost. So, uh, yeah, I'm uh, in the process of establishing a new board. Um, our, uh, our NGOs are called Grounded, Grounded Land Advocacy. So, um, yeah, I'm very lucky to have some of the leading academics in the country involved in that, some great advocates and, uh, yeah, very uh, uh, useful and important philanthropists. So it is, does it involve... Uh, people making a donation of land they own to a trust which has rules then about the ongoing use of the land. Is that what it's, is it philanthropic donation and then rules about use and eventual profit sharing? Is that, it involves somebody being a philanthropist and and giving away uh, something in the beginning is that is that what's no not right. always i mean council has a lot of surplus land so okay. we're working yep. with some councils to identify that and marry them up with ethical finance yep um the planners who know how to make this work um yeah but uh, essentially what it is is that the trust will own the land and the resident will own the house right so you only have to borrow 30 maybe 40% of your typical mortgage for the improvements for the building and then um, you pay um, either a yearly land lease or a a resale formula when you leave um, the community um, later on down the track. 
so by doing that um yeah the the pressures of of uh meeting a typical market rent are um, much much lower and you know the beauty of living in an intentional community is usually there'll be someone who's um you know, a great cook, another person who's into bulk buying, uh, someone who's a, perhaps a, a bit of an architect or a draftsman, and there'll be a uh, hopefully a financial planner who can help everyone get their finances in order. And so my dream is, you know, to help, uh, you know, kids in their, their mid-20s to mid-30s who lose that lost decade um, of rentals to be part of a CLT where their rental stream goes towards uh, uh, funding the small business opportunities for them to uh, to get going. And, you know, of course, in that mix, you'd have the, the age split. So uh, there may well be, um, you know, over 50s, over 55 uh, involved as well. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, there's so much, you know, we have this show in Australia called Neighbours. Yes. But um, so, so few of us actually know our neighbours. Yep. Um, but when you do get to know them and figure out what they're good at and what you're good at and how you can work together to make things happen, um, you know, you wonder why there isn't more of this going on. And when you look at the way the the housing economic side of things set up, the, the whole uh, planning legislation, the financing, you know, there's, there's a lot of hurdles put in place to kind of keep channeling people into this uh you know, master planned community kind of system um, that the big developers have rather than um, seeing housing as a fundamental human right and um, setting up all of the the legislation to support um, uh, that primary obligation the government should have to their citizens. One of the silver linings of the whole COVID um, pandemic has been the way people have um, looked afresh at their lifestyles and what was just assumed to always be there's no other option, I must live in the suburbs and I must commute for over an hour each way into the city and do the same on the way back. People mm. have stopped and looked and gone, well, for a start, you know, they were forced to stay at home and then they thought, gee, I actually quite like this. And then they managed to, you know, keep it up where they can get two or three days and then really people are starting to examine how can I make it five days? How can I actually get out of this permanently? So maybe your timing is good in the sense the pandemic has, I think, um, got people thinking about the possibilities and that there are other options, other ways of living out there. So, yeah. Yeah, the blinkers have come down for a little while and, you know, we're, I, we'd like to think that somewhere along the way the um, – the cards would fall on the community's um, side of the table. But uh, uh, one of the things I do, you know, I kind of, kind of call it um, grand final day for land economists is um, when the national accounts are released in um, late October and uh, the system of national accounts, uh, ABS 5204, table 61 is the one that values Australia's land. And we're one of only two or three countries in the world that separate the land from the buildings. And, you know, this is so fundamental to understanding this unearned income aspect. Mm -hmm. And uh, I did the numbers. I put the op-ed out there saying, wow, 
2020, 20, the financial year 2020-21, I was estimating that we would actually surpass um, 2017 where uh, land prices increased by $683.5 billion in a single year. What, as a percentage, like, wow. what was that? Well, as a total, it yeah. increased by six hundred and eighty-three billion. I think yeah. it was um, around about uh, seven billion, a trillion dollars in total there. Yeah. Um, and I said, well, that financial year um, is going to be worth about seven hundred billion dollar increase. Well, it turned out with all of the um, job seeker and job keeper payments, and then um, home builder. Uh, that I was a full $1 trillion short of what actually happened. Mm. Australian land prices increased by $1.7 trillion mm. and not one news agency picked up our press release. Yes. Yep. Yep. They really killed me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Oh, Carl. All right, well... That's been great, Carl. That's been a really good sort of uh, overview of of land and property and monopoly and and some solutions mixed in amongst there. And for a guy who's been out of podcasting for a few months, you've slipped back into the saddle as if you were never away. So I really appreciate it. And if you've got any more scoops or you just um, have uh, an itch that you need to scratch and get behind the microphone, um, just give me a buzz. You're welcome back at any time. Yeah, well, I'd love to give you an update in another year to see how uh, Grounded's going and see how many um, working um, community groups we've helped get up and over the line because that's really our aim. There's a lot of interesting groups around who are trying to get some form of community-led housing up as an alternative and you know, there have been a few groups uh, trying to trying to help them, but we're hoping within the community land trust space we can make a difference so that, um, you know, often you hear of these community groups having uh, five or ten years' worth of meetings and not owning any land and just watching the deposit gap keep expanding and just pulling their hair out. So um, hopefully we can um, work together as uh, a bit of a network to um, marry up all the people trying to do good things um, from various perspectives and get some economies of scale moving forward so that uh, people can have hope um, in in life again. It feels like there's a a lot of frustration out there and, um, I, you know, when you think of how much uh, financial pain we all have um, paying our weekly rents, our mortgages, um, just to get to channel some of that pain into uh, 20, 30 minutes a week studying some of these classic uh, economic stories and principles and really understanding the rules of economic engagement um, it would make life easier and we'd be able to hold our public representatives to account uh, more easily. Uh, yeah, mm. great to see Eddie Obeid finally mm. getting done again with more <laughs> more pressure, you know, one of the yep. arch uh, rent seekers uh, across water, across leasing, across mining, across land. He had the playbook for Monopolis and he got busted. Right. So they don't all get away with it. Yep. So where do people go if they want to keep track of what you're doing with this venture? What's a website or Facebook? What, what's, what, where should they look to keep track of what you're doing? It's all totally fresh. So it's going to be um, grounded.org.au mm-hmm. 
and uh, at Earth Sharing on Twitter. Yep. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, Carl Fitzgerald. And, uh, yeah, generally around and about, uh, I'll still be writing op-eds um, here, there and everywhere and trying to get um, more people to recognise that, you know, another world is possible. Good on you, Carl. I'm going to end this recording now and thank you for your time. Thanks, Carl. Good one. Take an iPhone, unpick it, open it. What do you find in it? You find a variety of technologies, each one of them was created by some government grant. None of them was produced by Apple. None of them was produced by Google. None of them were produced, was produced by Facebook. They were all produced by some government grant. This is what I'm saying about, uh, this is why I'm referring to the collective production of wealth, which is then privately appropriated. If you start thinking of it that way, then it's very easy to start thinking of basic income as a dividend. A dividend that goes to the collective that was responsible for collectively producing the wealth and the gadgets and the products and the markets. Because this false separation, illusory separation between the market and the state needs to be dissolved. There would have been no markets if there were no states. There would have been no capitalism if there was not a state. There would be no Apple, no Google if there was no state. And similarly, there would be no state if there were no private entrepreneurs. There would be no state if there were no private firms. We need to dissolve this false division. Well, dear listener, did you enjoy that episode of the podcast? If you did, I've got a favour to ask. Uh, First up, tell some friends. Let them know about the podcast. You'll be discussing something at some time, and you might be repeating something I've said. And when you're talking to your friends, say, hey, I heard this on this podcast and it's worth listening to. And maybe pick an episode that you think's a good one and direct them to it. Like grab their phone and go to their podcast app and search for Iron Fist Velvet Glove and subscribe <laughs> on their behalf on their phone and, uh, and just put the word out. The other thing is you could become a patron and support the show. So if you... Go to our website, you'll see a link to Patreon and there are some different options for subscribing and paying per episode and really the amount that you pay depends on what you get from the podcast. So there's different levels ranging from $1.50 Australian to I think $10 and various ones in between. It's really what do you think it's worth? Is it worth a cup of coffee? Uh, Is it worth... More than that, less than that, whatever you get out of it, because not everybody gets the same. Maybe you don't listen to the whole thing. Maybe you never talk about it with people. Maybe you really couldn't care less half the time whether the podcast is there. It just it'll be different for everybody. So if you get a lot out of the podcast, contribute a bit more. If you don't get much, contribute less. But in any event, you can subscribe there. If you don't like the idea of a regular subscription, the website has a link to a PayPal donation. So you could just do a one-off donation every now and again. So there you go. It'd be good to uh, spread the word, get a few more listeners. And that way, look, if we ended up getting more listeners and more money, we could do maybe a second episode or more special episodes, provide some more content. So it's up to you. If you think it's worthwhile, let people know. Thanks. Thanks.